0: Thank you very much for the opportunity to come back and bring you God's Word one more time. The text that we'll be reading from this morning is Psalm 2, Psalm 2. And while you are turning there, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, you have searched us and known us. We lack the wisdom to know ourselves as we should. We lack the discipline to seek you as we should. Make your word come alive through your spirit this morning, Lord. Break through our distractions and anxieties to plant seeds of change. and Give us hope and patience as we know that often these seeds take months and years to to bear fruit. Teach us to know ourselves and you as you have revealed yourself in your word. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. You can be seated. This past summer at Parish Church in Lafayette, where, I, where my family and I worship, uh, we did a sermon series through the Psalms. I think I may have mentioned it here in the past, our goal was to try to capture something of the range of human experience, the range of human emotion, as we travel as sojourners through this fallen world. And we began the series with this psalm, Psalm two, uh, because in many ways it provides a framework for understanding our relationship to the world. It provides a framework for understanding the experiences and the emotions that that we read about and that we experience through the Psalms. It gives us a picture of both the continued resistance of the world to God's reign, including our own internal sin, our own resistance and our own struggle. But it shows also that there will be a conclusion to these things. These things will not, the world will not continue on forever as we have Experienced it. Judgment will come. Deliverance will come. It's a heavy psalm, but it's also ultimately a psalm of hope. In the first stanza, the kings and people of the earth come together to plot the overthrow of the limitations that have been placed on them. They're they're plotting against the, the, the finitude, the finiteness of their humanity. They take counsel against God's rule, including against the dominion of His anointed King. But what exactly are these limitations, these chains? At first glance, their desire Seems reasonable to us. I mean, the the chains sound like oppression. This sounds like they they are unjustly burdened by somebody. Nobody wants to be in chains. It sounds oppressive. It sounds as though they are freeing themselves like we would all want to. This language of bursting bonds and casting away cords, though, has the connotation in Hebrew not of liberation from unlawful repression, but of rebellion against a lawful ruler. In other words, it is the search for complete autonomy, for self-rule, for self-sufficiency. And in fact, this declaration of autonomy has close connections with the original declaration of autonomy that Edom, that, from Adam and Eve in the garden. God had placed them in the garden, as I'm, as I'm sure you'll remember, placed them there with everything that they need. They live in perfect relationship with him. And his only stipulation is that they do not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. For if they do, if they break this stipulation, they'll be separated from God, which is spiritual death. And God warns them of such. But Satan convinces Eve that she is not what she could be. You will not surely die. God knows that if you eat the fruit, you will be like him. She, will, she comes to believe that she lacks something because God is holding out on her. She is tempted towards self-sufficiency to be made whole by her own efforts. She decides that she is not whole and furthermore desires to remedy this by taking matters into her own hands and eating the fruit of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. She will now determine, in in her own mind, she decides she will determine her own boundaries for right and wrong. She seeks to be whole, but on her own terms. And thus, so the kings and the people of Psalm 2. They desire unfettered power to pursue on their own terms what they believe will make them whole. To pursue what they think God is, is holding back. From them. And if it's true. For Eve. And for the kings of the earth. And for the people of Psalm 2. Then it is true for us. Even those who are in Christ. It remains true for us. Even as we claim Christ. Even as we continue to struggle against our our old selves. The the law of the flesh that is still at work in us. Now. Now. You may think as you as you think about your own life and your family and the people that you know, you may feel that this is a little bit of a a little, little bit of a stretch. For most for the most part, we aren't seeking unfettered power. Most of us are just trying to take care of business, raise a family, work a job, maintain good health, kind of keep things in order. But our constant militating for self-sufficiency and autonomy is just below the surface, the surface. And the moments of self-reflection makes this clear to us. It comes out in how we react to the broken world around us, especially in our intuitive, non-reflective moments. These reactions reveal the true contents of our hearts. When the demands of our vocations, for example, or child rearing, or what have you, fill in the blank. When the the demands of these things become overwhelming, instead of resting in our identity in Christ, we measure our worth by how well we can keep all the plates spinning in our own strength. We measure our self-worth by how well we can be self-sufficient. When we can't seem to get our spouse's priorities aligned with our own, when we can't get them to see just how right we are, instead of dying to self as Christ did and considering other needs as more significant than our own, we react in frustration with a desire to control, to force, to manipulate Or even with contempt, because our priorities are threatened. Similarly with our children. We can't seem to get the behavior that we want, the behavior that makes our lives easier. And instead of patiently discipling them, and showing them over time the depths of sin in their own hearts instead of trusting God to work in them as He has in us, we again react in frustration, arm-twisting, and force in order to control, in order to get immediate compliance. The impulse of our fallen natures is to react to difficulties out of a desire to control the outcome and to get our way. Rather than to engage the situation with the humble patience that comes from knowing that God is sovereign and is working for our good and his glory in all things. Instead of looking to Christ and his commands when we encounter the difficulties of life, we, re- we react out of fear and selfishness and pride in order to control the situation. And as we we grow in our awareness of this, we grow in our understanding of our need for Christ's blood to blot out our transgressions. It's it's in reflecting on these things that we understand the true depth of sin in our hearts and our true need for Christ to save us. These tendencies, these selfish tendencies become hardwired into us both through the corrupted nature that we're, born, that we're born with, but also as a learned response to the broken world and the broken people around us. We are both shaped in these ways. We learn these ways, but we're also born with the corruption already in us. In fact, these sinful tendencies seem to be such a powerful force that we can feel enslaved to them, and that is certainly the way that I feel. We often don 't even understand where our reactions come from we don 't understand our own desire for control and autonomy. Where does this come from how did this, How did this happen to me i didn 't realize that I was such a selfish person. We cannot we come to realize. That we can't control these things. We cannot improve ourselves. We cannot flush out the contents of our hearts by our own willpower. And likewise with the kings and the people of the earth. In Psalm two, it's not just that the individuals who hold power in the world are in rebellion, but even more so that the, the dynamics and the systems of our culture, which every day seek to shape us and to convince us that we are not all we could be and all that we need to be. That we have not obtained all that we need to obtain. This is, this is what the world tries to teach us, that we, that we have not achieved all that we can and should achieve to be whole. Our world cultivates discontentment. Telling us indirectly that we won't be happy until we have and control and achieve. Our culture constantly distracts. Feeding us a stream of shallow entertainment, emotional hits, and useless information. To keep us from having to consider the broken, thoughtless and dysfunctional ways in which we relate to the world and the people around us with all of these internal and external forces at work both in us in, as individuals but also in the world in the people in power and in the systems and the dynamics that 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 control the world it can be hopeless To to seek change. We can feel like we are without hope in changing. It's easy to become discouraged about the possibility of real, deep, and lasting change. I will tell you that I I am in a phase of life where I feel this more than ever. I'm 38 years old. I have been a believer for as long as I can remember. I'm the father of four children and I've been married for 15 years. And every evening, most evenings perhaps, my selfishness and lack of patience shows itself to some degree. As my answers to questions from my kids get shorter and louder, I lose patience And I start reacting to emotionally to the things that bother me as I get tired and try to wrangle four kids into bed and wrap the evening up. And I'm sure many of you can relate to this experience. I just want compliance. I just want to get the evening done so I can get on to the things that I feel like I have to do. I want what I want. Now. Now. By God's grace, I do believe that I am better now in this area than I have been in the past. But the battle continues. A battle to which I'm sure many of you can relate. And again, the the forces of rebellion, control, and autonomy in us as individuals, in our rulers, and in our culture as a whole can feel insurmountable. An unstoppable. Well, I, I trust that I, have, I am better about this than I have been in the past. Still, I am amazed by how selfish I can be. But that's why we have the second stanza. We come to the second stanza. And David tells us this. He who sits in the heavens... Laughs, The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God derides these forces of rebellion. He laughs at them. His purposes to bring all the world under Christ's dominion will be accomplished in spite of it. Despite my weakness, He will over time renew me. Not completely in this life, but ultimately I have that hope. Commentators have pointed out that in His that this laughter and derision that that David speaks of here, God is communicating such overwhelming power and control of the situation that He is is content to let it be for a while. He is content to let it persist for a while. He does not need to respond immediately, such is the, the depth of His control. The power of man's rebellion and of our weakness is trivial to Him. Like the Tower of Babel, where after all of man's efforts to build a tower to heaven, God still had to, metaphorically, the text says He had to come down to see it. That In man's best efforts to reach God, it is so minuscule that He still has to come down in order to see it clearly. Such is our rebellion and even our own weakness. Now, to the one who insists in continuing his rebellion to the to the rulers and to the powers that continue in their rebellion against God, this laughter is fearsome. It is the warning of of swift wrath and judgment that is withheld for a time, but will be let loose in fury. God's king will reign. His purposes will not be defeated. But to those who are in Christ, to those who yearn for the rebellion to cease, for those who yearn for renewal in their own hearts as we, as we see our weaknesses more and more, for those who yearn to be freed from this slavery to their corrupt nature, this is a laughter of hope. This is a laughter that communicates that our struggle will not last forever. It is coming to an end. God, through Christ in us, will be victorious over the rebellion. He will continue to reveal and to unravel the layers of sinful desire within within us and expose us to His healing grace. Until one day when He returns and we will Ultimately, we will be completely pure in all of our actions, thoughts, words, and emotions. And He will do this through the power of His King Jesus. his, His King who reigns over Zion, which is an Old Testament precursor of the church. And even now... Even now we need not fear the condemnation of the sin that still dwells within us. Because he has already covered it in his blood. Even as we struggle day to day with our selfishness and our lack of patience. We can understand that we are already washed pure by his word. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Paul writes, And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In another sense, God's laughter provides perspective. The forces that seem so insurmountable, so salient, the weaknesses that feel so overpowering to us, that seem to control the course of the world and our lives, this rebellion will be ended in a breath. What seems powerful will prove to be weak. What seems weak will overcome. The church, which seems so beset by strife and scandal internally and and increasingly faces barriers to engaging the world effectively, the church will ultimately prove to be victorious. Not because we are so faithful or because there's any strength in us or because there's any good thing in us, but because the church is Christ's. And the church is the body of Christ on earth. And it is in His power that we will prevail. This follows the biblical theme of the great reversal that you may have heard of. It's seen most clearly in Christ's Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It is the poor in spirit who will receive the kingdom of heaven. It is those who mourn who will be comforted. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who will ultimately be satisfied with it. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12.10, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thus so the church. Believers and unbelievers alike should not be lulled into a false sense of complacency. This world and what it values and what it prioritizes will be turned on its head in this great reversal. The mountains will be brought low and the valleys raised up. The poor made wealthy and the wealthy made poor. The wise made foolish and the foolish made wise. The reversal is fearsome for those who reject God's reign, but hopeful for those who desire to see God's reign in the world, and in their own hearts. The third stanza addresses God's Son directly. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, let me offer a little bit of, of an explainer here to understand how this relates to what we've been talking about. Originally, when David wrote this psalm, the son referred to his descendants, his dynasty as a whole. They were, in a sense, the son because they were the descendants of God's anointed king over Israel. And in fact, the language draws on the language God used when he established his covenant with the house of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7.14. God said that David's descendants would be like sons to God, and he would be their father. And he would ensure that a descendant of David would always be on the throne of God's people. And of course, this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is the son of David. So David's house, David's dynasty, is collectively a son Christ, as the fulfillment of this promise, is the son. But God also refers to Israel, the nation, as his son. In Hosea 11, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Of course, we can recognize that this verse describes both Israel in the Exodus coming out of Egypt, but also Christ in his sojourn in Egypt as an infant. And the church now, the New Testament Israel, is filled with the adopted sons and daughters of God. So the, the, the point is, in, in my explainer here, is that Christ himself but also the people of God who are united to Christ in his death and resurrection may properly be called the sons of God. David, David's descendants, the church, Christ himself, all may be called the sons of God. And this follows with the theme of the church as co-heir with Christ of all spiritual blessings and of the new heavens and the new earth. So this this third stanza where where Christ where, where God promises that that the earth will 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 be reigned by will be ruled over by his son applies to the church it applies to Christ and it applies to the church as well. One day the church which now appears so weak and increasingly irrelevant, at least from the world's perspective. The church as the body of Christ, unified with Christ, will possess the ends of the earth. The nations will be its heritage, and God's purposes to bring this about are not swayed or affected in any way by our own weakness or unfaithfulness. Shortly after Christ's ascension, the apostles themselves, the the very foundation of the church, understood that this psalm referred to them. And they drew strength from this psalm for that very reason. In Acts chapter 4, Paul and John have just been threatened by the authorities for preaching Christ. They've been threatened and released by the authorities and warned to stop preaching. But we see picking up in verse 23, this is Acts 4, verse 23. When they were released, Paul and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And here it is, Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The church at this time was small and oppressed. The apostles drew strength in a time of discouragement from God's purposes, his promises to his people, a purpose that is never forgotten and that must impact our perspectives on everything that we do. It's a, it's a purpose that transforms every aspect of our lives. Let us draw strength from these promises just As the early disciples did. God's mission for the church. For us. Cannot fail. It will ultimately renew the whole earth. If we're engaging in it. It cannot only be a portion of our lives. We cannot separate out the spiritual portion of our lives. When we come to church. Or when we pray. Or when we read our Bibles. From the. So, so-called secular portion of our lives, where we just go about the things we got to do in order to survive, we can't do that. God's work of renewal, which includes His work of judgment, is our anchor. It's our starting point. It's our it's our lens for understanding every aspect of our lives. We engage joy and contentment where we find it in our lives with thankfulness, knowing that it is undeserved and that it's a down payment on his full deliverance from the effect of the fall. We engage sadness and suffering with hope, knowing that although the curse still holds some sway, he is rolling back its effects We engage work knowing that He uses even the most mundane of tasks to build His kingdom. We engage failure in our indwelling sin, knowing that our identity is in Christ, not in our old selves and not in our continued weakness. And we know that no amount of our own failure can separate us from God's love. No amount of our own failure threatens our identity in Christ. The fourth and final stanza offers both warning and invitation. Drawing on the pending judgment which has been described in the previous three stanzas, the fourth stanza beckons us. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We are warned, along with all the kings of the earth, to serve, rejoice, and to kiss the sun. This image of, of kissing the sun is the idea of paying homage to royalty. A display of loyalty. And there's a sense of urgency here. Lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. His anger spills over at a time that it's most unexpected. The people will be carrying on, walking in the way of rebellion, being given and in, in, uh, being given in marriage, as Jesus tells us, thinking that they will continue on with their plans indefinitely. Complacent in their self-sufficiency, not realizing that they will be stopped short in their paths by his overflowing anger. This is very sobering. Now, his wrath being quickly kindled does not mean that it's easily kindled. God shows us great forbearance, for we know that God is slow to anger. And this psalm itself has a note of restraint as God laughs at sin without intervening for a time, as I said a moment ago. But quickly kindled means that it comes to us all at once, unexpectedly. We think that we will continue on, that the world and all its self-sufficient rebellion and autonomy will continue, but it will not. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you yourselves are fully aware. That the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Then a sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Jesus himself says in John 5. Truly, truly. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every time I preach a passage on judgment, a passage that has a prominent Theme of judgment, I would say. I'm very aware of how backward it sounds. I'm tempted to even feel like it's backward as it, as it comes out of my mouth. It, it feels like a, a throwback to an earlier time. A, a medieval time, if you will. A much less tolerant time. But it's only to the extent that we are aware of and take seriously and soberly reflect on God's judgment. It's only to that extent. That we can understand the refuge that is offered in Jesus. As the psalm closes. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We do not understand Refuge, We do not understand the forgiveness of our transgressions. We don't understand the value of Christ's blood if we don't understand that from which we are saved. God's judgment comes not only because of the continued corporate rebellion of the whole world and its rulers. The kings of the earth t- trying to throw off their chains as we saw in the first stanza but it's becoming it's coming because of the seed of self-sufficiency and the re- and rebellion in each of us as individuals the problem isn't just out there in those people and the people who who you know the, the, the nebulous they who kind of control our lives as we like to think the problem isn't just out there the problem is in here as well in each of us individually So if you have not yet come to grips with your rebellion against God, with the fact that you live at enmity with God, or at least you did, if you haven't come to terms with the fact that such rebellion will be judged, don't ignore the invitation in this psalm. If you've acknowledged these facts and do seek to seek refuge in Christ's atoning self-sacrifice, and you do seek the renewal of your, of your own internal life and the destruction of your own self-sufficiency and selfishness, if you do seek those things, then, then cling to the hope in Christ and, and seek ever-deepening wisdom to understand how these evil desires still shape you and hold sway in you and affect your life from day to day. But engage in this retrospection again with hope, knowing that those who seek refuge in Christ are His and that cannot be changed. And nothing will separate those who belong to Christ from Him. As a final note, It's ironic that the kings of the earth seek to throw off their bonds and cords to seek what they think is freedom. And it's ironic that we as individuals turn to to autonomy and self-sufficiency to be made whole. Because Christ tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He offers what we seek at no cost, at no price. It's easy and light because Christ gives us true freedom. Freedom from the chains of sin and corruption that keep us from living as God created us to live. Under Christ's yoke and burden, we understand his call to rejoice. Because in his restraints, we finally become free and we finally become who we truly are. Let me pray for us. Lord, open our eyes to the urgency of your invitation. Your word is clear that judgment is coming and will be swift and unexpected. And this, this sounds implausible in our modern age and in our modern ears. But you offer more than just refuge. You offer, you, you offer new life. You offer renewal from the rebellion and corruption deep in our bones. Give us eyes to see our rebellion and hearts that cling to you and joy as we find our fullness in you. Amen.